Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name is Mark Smith and I'm the tech editor of Resident Advisor. This week's exchange is with Mr. G. Colin McBean is one of the most widely respected dance music artists to emerge from the UK. During the 90s, he was part of the beloved KC Seed crew and made rampaging techno and electro with Cisco Ferreira as the advent. But it's as Mr. G that he's made the greatest impact. Armed with an MPC and a mixer, his energetic live shows and productions have turned him into an unassailable figure whose work rate is only matched by the quality of his grooves. In this live conversation with Martha Pazienti Caden, recorded at Printworks for the AVA London conference, we hear how McBean's passion took root at an early age and the multitude of experiences that helped him develop into one of the scene's best-loved figures. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges at residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. The exchange with Mr. G is up next. everyone and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange. We're at AVA Festival today here at the Printworks. My name's Martha, I'm from RA. And would everyone give a very warm welcome to Mr. G. Hi everybody. Oh, welcome to you. And, um, Thank you. And you. We're going to be spending some time getting to know you this afternoon. But before we dive into your career and music work, would you share with us your early musical memories? Wow. Uh, yeah, my mom and dad listening to Jim Reeves or early Skia or Blue Beat, a lot of gospel. And a, and a lot of, I suppose, white indie music like Gilbert Sullivan, you know, Helen Reddy, Angie Baby. I was, yeah, our house went everywhere. So that was my, my earliest. And my parents, my father used to run a community centre and um, put on, you know, after-hours parties. And I'd be the little kid that's sneaking with him and listen to the sound system. And that was really my earliest memory. And when did you first get your hands on making music or being involved with selecting music? Oh, really young. Um, there was a local crew, uh, I think it was called Patrick. Um, and I wanted to get into the sort of Shubin. Shubin is like where you just find an old house and you go in and you set up a system in the back room and you're selling drinks and whatever all night long, and I wanted to get into one, so I realized the only way I was ever gonna get in at a young age is to offer to carry speaker boxes. So I turned up and he said, yeah, turn up Saturday, I'm calling some box for me, you know, and we ended up in some old house, and I was way too young to be in there, but I was sat behind the system. So I, at a very young age, understood about amplifiers and monitors and LEDs long before I got into it. And then from there, it was a case of, yeah, you're gonna watch the amps tonight, and then eventually, it was like, why do you try selecting? So you'd have the box with all the tunes in, and your job would be to pass the seven inch to the guy that you thought was the right tune. And as, as I got better at it, that's, that was the beginning of my world. Okay. 
Okay, so someone else would actually play it and the crowd yeah, would see yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. And you'd be down there. Yeah. You'd be, you'd be at the back with a selection of records and you'd say, yeah, this one next. And you'd, if you're good, you'd, you'd keep your job. If you weren't good, you'd, yeah, next man in. And I've always, I've always done that. You know, my thing is about, when I say selector, today's selector seems to be this, yeah, controversial, some arty-farty, rare record that's on the internet for silly money that you're not going to get that sounds what I would call grade three as a good tune. Whereas I'm about... A, a cold 10, whether it's jazz, pop, disco, funk, indie, classical, that's, that's the door I come in at. So, and I think a selector's about, about knowing that at this point in the party, you can throw in the most random thing that will work. That's a selector for me. And whereabouts were these parties? Derby. Derby, I'm a Midland boy. <laughs> and what kind of genres were you selecting? Uh, well, most of Shubins was only reggae. Reggae or two-step soul. You know, you either had your two-step soul to get you sort of uh, uh, slow dance towards the end of the night, <laughs> or, you know, <laughs> and, and the, the reggae was just, yeah, you'd just be there, just bubbling three, four, five in the morning, running before you're in trouble, so yeah. Um, so where did you first get your hands on house and techno music? Ooh, I worked in a record shop uh, in Derby. It was called Ari Chords, funny enough. Um, and really, I suppose everything that I am comes from that, that whole experience because it was, an, I think an Australian guy and a British guy set up a club. The club was futuristic. I originally had a job in the club as a chef and worked in a record store. And this club, unbeknown to me, was, was really something special because we had everybody from uh, Boy George, Blue Ronda, Le Turc, you know, anything that was around that sign, you know, Sheffield sign, Cab Voltaire, all that was coming through the club every week. So, because I was a chef, I worked in a record shop, I had two angles. So, I heard all the sort of, at that time it was weird to me, as I grew, I realised I was in a scene that was amazing. But at the time, it didn't mean anything to me. It was just another group coming through the door, because I was a soul boy. And I worked in a soul section of a shop. So, my thing was, you know, Saturday morning, the box would arrive from the States, and you'd have 20 people in this section of the shop. And as you open the record, you'd have like, five or seven or ten of each title and you'd play one and your job was to find who put the hand up first so I, I remember things like you know the promo copy of McFadden and Whitehead Ain't No Stopping Us Now on Philly International and thinking oh my god I'm taking two. Oh look there's only four and the rest of the shop fighting over the two so I was always privy to a lot of things and also a great DJ called Hector um, who for me is a legend, he, he did the indie and other sections of the shop and was a buyer. And he took me under his wing and really taught me everything from rockabilly right through, which again at the time meant nothing because I was a kid. You know, man chatting to you like, yeah, yeah, whatever. But as I grew older, you realise, oh my God, the cure. Yeah, I know which the bad track of theirs is. Or, you know, you could, you could just pinpoint all the great music, you know, Sound of the Crowd, The Human League. There's some odd records I shouldn't know, but they were firm favourites. And the Derby scene back in the day was a very soul-led scene. So we had, you know, Neil Neil, John Grant, Colin Curtis, all the mainstays lived in the north. So we used to go Castanelli's, go everywhere just to follow music. So that's, that's and to, to this day I'm still like that. Um, so how did you go from being behind the scenes in the shop and as a chef to actually getting in the clubs on the decks? Uh, that was quite a long time because... 
a, a friend of mine, uh, Devon, had a, a sound system DC collection, and he used to DJ. And in little by little, everybody knew I, I collected records long before I was ever going to play one. You know, I was buying hard from the record shop, but I had no intention of ever really being a DJ. I just wanted this eclectic taste for myself. And I was a bit of an odd kid. I was a kind of a loner. So my thing was pulling speakers apart, putting speakers back together, you know, wiring up tweets pieces around the whole front room and annoying the whole street. That was my, I didn't want to. And then someone said, you've got a good collection called, why don't you come and play with us? And that was the beginning, you know. And then as time went on, I became a little bit of a devil because I realized, wow, these guys don't know music. If he's playing that as his A grade, you watch me. <laughs> so, you know, you start taking scalps and as you do that, you either rise or people stop you from rising. So I've always been that way. For me, when a man says he can do something, I'm like, there it is, show me. Because I am confident in what I hold and what I do. And I think that is the most important thing, that you not only know what you're doing, but you are prepared to share. If you come and ask me for a tune, I'm playing. I came from the generation where they used to have slip mats and they'd drop one over and you'd look and you'd see nothing. You know, that's where it was back in the day. You couldn't go on the internet and find a rare tune, Google it, Shazami. You know, you might spend five years. I remember Norman Jay's um, theme tune, Windy City. Heard it week in, week out. Haunted it, searched it, went to States, found the album, got it back like, yes. And then realized the version he plays is a super rare seven inch and you're nowhere near. And it took me probably 10 years to find the tube. And that, that was how it was back then. And also if you spent money, you know, I think today we have this thing where, you know, you, you, the, the digital thing where you, you're buying fresh air, I can't get mad around it because for me it's that record that somebody spilled drink on in a rave and it, and it sticks and it clicks. And every time it clicks, you think, right, did that, that party on the Edgware Road or wherever it was, that's, that's the important thing. And also, those, those records with that history, you gravitate to. My favourite records are never too far from me, just for that reason. So you were playing around Derby. When did you start to travel for music? Ooh. KCC. Uh, came to London met Keith, Keith was doing a, an exchange thing for kids uh, in the studio, and a friend said, go, you know, I think this is a path for you. And we got on, so we became KCC, uh, we did Carnival, Keith's dream was to do Carnival, and I was like, yeah, yeah, but I have to say, you know, we did it three years on a trot before they moved, it was moments of our life. And then we got called to places like Gothenburg, which was really strange looking back, you know, we were massive in a place like Gothenburg, Sweden, um, I played in Belgium in another club under another name. So from that point on, I was, yeah, international and travelling. Mm, tell me a bit more about Notting Hill Carnival around that time and what were you playing? Oh, yeah, pretty just the same thing, just nothing changed. Just, just, you know, the best reggae, the best soul, the best funk, the nastiest house. And it was a melting pot and we had the rocking crew, which, which was and still is probably one of the nicest sound systems around. And Mark's thing was... He was the first guy to bring over long throw speakers. So it was amazing, but it, it, it ultimately crushed us because we set up at a pitch in a lovely, I think it's Powys Square, kids playground behind you. You've got all the million dollar houses in front of you and we were sort of in the cutout set up. And by three hours in, it was like blocked three roads that way, three roads that way and three roads that way because a long throw means the base isn't at point A, 
it's the furthest away. So the further away you are, the more bass you can get. So there came a point where, yeah, police just, just moved us on because, you know, we, we, we became too strong. I remember playing and, and I lived in Camden at the time and my local copper walks past me and says, yeah, Colin, I'm keeping an eye on you. For me, that was shocking back then because we had too much power. You know, it was Rampage just around the corner, Mastermind just went over, and we could lock off the area with people having a good time. But eventually, they moved us to another spot and I just refused to be moved. I'm like, I'm done because I started here. Why can't I be here? It was about controlling and stuff and I'm not, not down with that. Mm. So you mentioned you were in a trio KCC, but you were also in a duo as well. Tell me about your time as a yeah, duo. Yeah, well, eventually... Um, Cisco and I didn't get on in the beginning. I mean, he was a graffiti artist, and I think he felt him and Keith were mates, and I was the Derby boy. Imagine Derby coming to London, you know, like, you stuck out like a sore thumb, but Keith loved me because I had this amazing collection, so we got on. And then little by little, I got to learn about Cisco, and I remember him starting to play techno, which for me was like another world. I'm a soul boy, you know. And he, he started to play... Um, what was the first one? Waveforms. He gave me Waveform CD or vinyl, Jeff Mills, for, for one of birthdays. And he said, this is the man. And I remember thinking, wow, this white guy sounds really cool. And then Cisco says, we're going to see him at Lost. Uh, Steve Bicknell's parties, famous parties. And we got on stage, and I'm waiting, and I'm waiting. Cisco knew what was going to happen. And this guy walks on stage, little guy, and I'm thinking, this little guy makes this crazy music. And he's a black man. So all of a sudden, the world just opened up for me because like, wow, this, this is unknown to me. So I then spent the next few years and we were going to Detroit and stuff to perform. So I just, just went mad buying and yeah, finding the history of it all. And you had a residency in London, didn't you, as KCC? Oh, the good old, good old Nicky Tracks. Nicky Tracks used to do um, Confusion, which is probably one of the earliest central London rave things and it was about trying a sound system in a sort of glitzy-ish space and just get down and everybody from yeah Kevin Saunson, Juan, Derek, uh, Frankie, Tony, I mean Nikki would have had everybody and they'd have, they'd have probably played for like 50-60 quid and then she moved, Confusion was Kid Bachelor, Bang the Party and they, they split, and it became Melange, and it was in, um, in the basement of a club in Ganton Street, Soho. So we had a club in Soho where we put a tent inside the club. I'm not even going to go there, but it was a reggae system in a basement in central London. I, I tell you, it, it, it was just legendary. You'd go in down these stairs, and as you go halfway down the stairs, the bass would just hit you. And to see, I saw most of the greats play with me. I mean, the... Truth be told, old Derek May, he left most of his records. I ended up with 70 records of his that I just like, yeah, to this day I've still got them. Never gave them back, you know, it's just like. <laughs> but it, it, it was an amazing time, you know, to see early Richie. All, all the people that went on to be huge played there for nothing. And you saw who was hot and who wasn't hot. And it was, it, it was a much more balanced time. You know, it wasn't them and us and it wasn't anybody better. It was a love of the music and a love of the scene. I mean, we would take on any of them, no problem. You know, and, and what was even weirder is the other resident that no one ever mentions was Bookham. And Bookham, LTJ Bookham used to turn up with his big headphones and he was always deafening. But he always had a different vision. So you knew, you knew he was, Danny was going to go somewhere. But no one ever talks about him. 
And did that experience kind of set you up for travelling the world to play? Nothing can ever set you up for that. Nothing. Nothing. You, you have to learn to be, as I said, to, I'll tell any man, make sure you're carrying tens in your box or don't come out of your house. Because the whole idea, if you've got, my philosophy is you've got a box of 10 out of 10 records, wherever you go, you're good. If you've got lame records, you might take the wrong twist and game over. But if you're dropping bullets after bullets and you've got that selection, you've got nothing to fear. Um, tell me about some of your early trips abroad and what was it like playing in such a different context? I think Gothenburg, the first time I went to Gothenburg was, was just strange because it was a carnival. It was a guy that had a vision, Johan, I, I can't even remember his name, Johan. And it wasn't really a city that was into that scene for me, so tough, but we had a little space, actually near a police station, and he used to just throw these all-night parties and we used to play. And it... it the, the kids love that authentic, yeah, just just roughness. And we, we always went from early drumming bass, like We Are E, right through to, the, to, 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 to T99 European techno. And that's that was the fun. You'd start one space, you'd go somewhere, you'd twist. But because there weren't, I suppose, inverted commodores, trendy people, they just loved what we did and went mad. But pretty quickly, I mean, I was doing places like Belgium, but I didn't want to be a guest. I can't explain that because that whole thing of coming in and doing two hours and trying to, trying to tell a story is hard when you go abroad. And I understand in the same way, I think festivals are going the same way. It's like short and sweet. And I'm not about that. I'm about, I want to I wanna show you where I'm from. You know, I, I played a, a set in Dijon, Paris recently and the, the, the prerequisite was I could play whatever I wanted from my youth. I expected nobody, the place was cork, people couldn't get in. The high point for me was going from a solid disco record, stopping everything, and out of the mist, bring up Bob Marley, Natural Mystic, and watch people start to cry. That is what it's about, you know? And what's your ideal length of time to DJ for? I don't think there is an ideal length. I, I think if you have a great system and a great crew of people in front of you, who are enjoying your stuff, who want to get down, then unless the floor is half empty, you, 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 you just do what you do till you're either tired or you need a break or... I don't think there should be a, a time. I'm certainly not a two-hour man. If I was DJ and I want to DJ four or five hours because, you know, I've made that selection and that's, that is, you know, every one of those records I would love to play. So a two-hour thing and you think, well, I didn't get to play that and I missed that and I missed... No. Do you prepare for your DJ sets? Yeah, absolutely. I pay, my, my motto is fail to prepare, prepare to fail. And that means that whatever I do, even if I'm playing, I played last week, I'm DJing. I don't always DJ, I do a lot of live mostly, but I check and double check everything. I record my selection. I sit in my front room and play it back through the hi-fi and listen, that ain't flowing, that sounds like that, out. And by whatever period I've set myself to source it, Every day that box will change, something will go in or something, oh, sugar, where's that? And you spend a day digging up the house for one record you want to play. No, there's never a case of the box is ready, just take it out. There's always a thought. What time of day is it? The day party it needs to be more soulful. Is it night? Is it mid-morning? Is it late in the morning, trippy time? You know, I, I don't just do, I don't just DJ. There's a lot of thought goes into it. And you play quite a lot in Germany, is that right? Yeah, back in the day. 
uh, it, the Germany was more the live thing, like um, uh, Sven invited us to go and play live at, at Omen, which was just an amazing club in Frankfurt, Sven Bath. And we, we couldn't afford flights because of all the equipment. We used to travel with a, <laughs> it's mad, a 32-channel mixer. And we used to hire a T5 uh, Volvo estate and drive all the way there. Drive, get there, sound check, play, finish, pack up, drive home. That was a weekend. So, you know, once you're doing things like that, you, life changes. Life changes, it really changes. I never thought we'd get on a plane. I, I really believe that this was, this was the way you pack up the car and you drive to the next place, you know, Manchester, wherever, Austria, we did once. And we drove nearly everywhere. And at one point it was like, this is madness. We need to try and get a flight case and get someone to pay or hire. Oh my God, they can hire a mixer. And then that was the light bulb moment. What was it like playing at Trezor when it was starting out? Me personally, that, that is always one that leaves a strange taste because, I mean, I knew about techno. I was in a techno world, but it was Cisco's thing. Cisco's always been the more techno-minded. And this club was the holy grail. I understood by his vibe. So we get there, go into soundcheck, and it's like, this place looks like some kind of old bank or something. And we end up, lowest floor, through a tiny little arch to get into this room with lockers. And all I remember thinking is, rotted. I'm at the furthest point in the club. The room is cock. How am I going to get out if anything happens? And, and the whole show was only that. Me thinking, I can't wait. And in fact, I almost had a panic attack because the ceiling is so low, the room was packed, and just this thing going through my mind, you can't get out of here, Cole. So I don't have the, I don't have the feeling that everybody else has about... You know, I was scared. You know, it was alien to me. Let's talk a bit more about your live set. When did you start to develop that? It wasn't, when, when Cisco and I finished, the advent finished because it's like, I watch it with a lot of people. When you're on the road constantly with someone, I mean, you're seeing them more than your partner. And there's, there is many groups split because you're just too much in each, each other's pockets. You need to separate. So I left. I had no intention of ever, this is the funny thing, of ever doing anything. I was like, I'm just going to go back to collecting records and playing music for myself, whatever. And I was getting offers when I left as Mr. G to do something. And I thought, nah, I'm never going to do it. I'm so used to having someone next to me. I couldn't think of going on my own. <sighs> then I started writing music. I spent two years sending myself mad and teaching myself how to produce because Cisco was the engineer. I, I couldn't, you know, I knew about sampling and bad tunes, but I didn't know the sonic thing. He was the master at that. But you pretty soon learned that being with someone that good for so long, it must rub off on you. So I left with an MPC, spent two years learning it, and then at one point thought, okay, I can start making records. The records start to do well, and people are like, do you want to perform live? I'm like, no, thank you. And it kept going. I remember the, the first year I got offers from, from Tokyo and just was like, I'm never going out on the road on my own, forget that. Um, and then carried on, carried on, and I think, the first gig was Andy Mack from Skint. He said, I've got a club, do you want to come and play live? And as, as with everything, I, I said, no. My wife said, yeah, you can do it, go." So I went, and believe it or not, the first, the first gig was me, an MPC, a mixer, and a record turntable, because I couldn't understand how to link the tracks, because everything at that point was 
mix friendly, one long mix. And there was me coming in with different tracks. I was like, okay, so I'll do this voice thing over the top. Well, it failed badly because you couldn't hear the voice when it came in. So little by little, I learned about timing. And, and I think only the last six months, I really feel I know my job. And how have you developed the live show in terms of like what do you bring with you? Nothing's changed. I changed. Uh, I've always been caveman style, uh, MPC mixer. I believe that if you, it's like anything, I think less is more. And certainly in the club situation, I learned very early on that all that digital effects and panning on a big system, you're not hearing anything. Mono, straight in, boof, bass, heavy, frequencies. I changed. As I grew more confidence, I started with a book. I had a little book with all my notes in, you know, when to change, what to do. And then eight months in, let's try it without the book. They tried it without the book. Oh my God, I can do it. This is, this is even better, you're freer. Then it's like, okay, I'm bored again. Oh, you've got an effects unit on the desk. Let's try that. Then finally I thought, well, when you're at home in the studio, you always dance. I've always danced. I'm a dancer. That's the only thing I know. Um, I dance to everything. I dance in the kitchen. Me and the wife have a dance over nothing whenever she walks past. I am that guy. So there came a moment where it was like, well, why don't you try and sell your music in your image of yourself. And the minute I started to, I say, act the fool, only then did things start to change. I mean, it, it's amazing that you can translate your music by what you're doing and the dancing. And my thing is, you know, I'm not only about energy. I just, I just want to destroy the place. Everywhere I go, the only thing I'm interested in is leaving a mark. And it's not in a, um, an eager way. It's just, I come from sound systems. It's like, Whoever's on the stage, I want to be number one because that's, that's just how we're, we were built. So even if I'm underscore, you'll probably find that I'm going to turn myself inside out to take the top. Because, and I think there's nothing wrong with that. I just want to do my very best. But even this, this weekend here was wrong. I mean, I spent forever asking for an open stage so everybody can see me. This is print work. It's four and a half thousand people. It's like, yeah... But I arrive on a stage where you, you've only got half the stage. Vision, I don't understand why. But I do understand I'm different and people don't get it. If you haven't seen what I've done, most of my problem is telling people, I'm not a DJ. At the moment I'm doing the live thing, MPC Mixer, my own tunes, mixed live for you. But I would have loved the open stage because I felt Saturday was 75% and I, I came to give the 110 and it's disappointing, but I think the industry really struggles with anything different. You know, people want to sit me as a DJ. In this, you know, m m most of the gigs I play, I end up on one side. Because the, the, the gig is set for the DJ. The CDJs and the decks are in the middle. So how are you going to get your MPC in the middle? So I always play one side, which is a real bugbear. And it's only this last six months we've started to say, right, we must find a solution. Because... They don't know what I do. How do you stay motivated when you have to iron out these little bugs all the time? Hey, listen, I'm blessed. <laughs> listen, listen I, I, I died at 44, defibrillated back to life. Every single day is a blessing. And there's not a moment that I don't acknowledge that. And also, the mistakes also help you learn your art. The more horrible situations you're in and have to find a way out, the more you learn your art. And to be fair, I think the whole really over-the-top 
dancing movement thing came in. I played with Nina in um, Stockholm. And 10 minutes before the end of the show, the promoter goes, she's running late. You know, I've only got a set of my tracks in the NPC. So I was like, you know what you need to do? You need to improvise, break it down, change it, strip it out, make it stringy, dance more. And only then do you start to think, okay, there's so much more you can do. I think when you have it easy, you don't, you don't grow. I, I would have never found the stage show I do now if I hadn't had so much pain of finding the right way to do it. And do you apply like a similar ethos to your label and how you release things via the label? No, nah, the label's just the label's just a label. I, I mean, most of it's me. Just because I got sick of sending people stuff and they'd say to you, you know, can you make it sound like your last hit? I mean, the amount of people will say, can I have a Mango Boy track? Can you make it sound like Transient? Can you make it sound like... And you think, but I don't work like this. Those tracks were hits. They were just hits. I didn't write them as hits. They went off and did their own thing of you to sort of squeeze the box and say, go back and make part 26 of that. It's like, nah. So I started Phoenix G just for myself. But I read somewhere very early on, one of the greats who said, if you enter any art form with a true heart and do what you do and don't look back, at some point, your back castle will catch you up. So when I started making music, there was no... I didn't want to be anything. I didn't want to be a star. I didn't want to be anything. I'm just making music because I've got a studio and I love making music. Releasing records, same thing. And then all of a sudden, it's like, wow, this thing is rolling nice. But I still, still didn't look back. And it was other people that realized all of a sudden, shit, I'm using this guy's back catalog, man. And then it catches you up. And then you're something. You know, it, it, I think we live in a world where people want it day one. I mean, look at me, I'm 57. Do you know what I mean? It's like... It's a blessing, but I can't believe I'm here. I really just... Because you, you work at it so long that when the moment comes, you actually don't really see it because you're just taken, taken with it. And if you don't try to be anything you're not, I'm probably a bit, bit grumpy, A eh? 57, what do you expect? But, you know, and a bit of a perfectionist, I must say. I, I, you know, I do like shit done right. You know, most people don't. I like it right. But apart from that... You know, it, it, it is a blessing. It really is. And anybody who complains needs to go and get a nine to five because we are the privileged few. And there's never a moment. I, I, I listen to lots of kids' demos. I try and give back. I try and mentor kids. I'm not running around like many. Yeah, see me, yeah, I've done well. You're locked out. No, because that's not how we grow. Excuse me, if I hadn't had Hector teaching me his knowledge, why would I just want to hold it to myself? He was good enough to teach me, so, you know, if I find the right people, I want to share that also and, and carry on the mantle of putting forward good old music. Do you still have time to spend in record shops? Yeah, every, every Thursday for the last 30 years. I go into Soho and I walk from one side to the other. I look at art, sneakers, clothes, restaurants, record shops. You know, I see most things first. So you can see, like, like the jazz thing, I spotted that coming way before. I mean, I think I bought Henry's first thing on 22A and thought, ooh, this is a new sound. Need to watch these guys. You know, and, and that's the beauty of having a love of music, that you catch things. There's even things I've, I've gone to buy and thought, wow, you know, this STL guy, where did he come from? And then you're in the collection one day and you see you got 01, 02, 03, 04 on the floor. So you're already there. But it's, it's imp it, it is a thing that, 
I think a lot of people miss because some of the greatest records and finds are not what I find. It's you're in a shop and some kid says, hey, Mr. G, do you know this record here? It's my fave. And he pulls out a tune and you're like, ooh, you know, you can't get that from the internet. You, you really can't. You can't meet a man and say, oh, look, let me look in your bag what you bought. Oh, what's that? Oh, I quite fancy that. So that's why every Thursday, rain or shine, if I, unless I'm not here, I am around the West End looking, digging records. And also, big tip, most of the stock of all shops comes in on a Thursday. So rather than waiting bun fight Friday, I'm at home with, with the hot ones, you know, new Moody Man album is there. There, you know, I'm not, I'm not fighting anybody or going on discounts for it. I bought it in the shop, nice. Do you find spending that time on Thursdays um, actually being out and about in Soho quite therapeutic or ritualistic in a way? It used to be in the beginning. It, it, it's harder now because you, you, were, you were invisible. Now people know where you are. You go in the shop and there's six men stood on the counter like... <laughs> you know, or you've got the guy at the top end of the... the you're, you're playing your records invisible and there's a guy at the end of the counter with his phone and he's, he's like... And I'm like, well, just ask. But my, my thing is a Friday... Um, if I'm not on the road, Friday 2 o'clock, I have four hours with my sound system listening to whatever I've bought, whatever I've been sent, whatever I fancy listening back to, and that is sacrosanct to me. Without that, I couldn't function because you need to just get away from the world you're in, you know. I might listen to classical, I might listen to jazz, I might listen to some tripped out or experimental, but you need to just keep things fresh. You can't just... The monotone of the kick ain't for me. You know, there's, there's times you need it, but there's other times you need the, the, the beauty of a, a ballad. And that, that is my first love. <laughs> Believe it or not, I've got a massive, yeah, soppy ballad collection. Yeah, people don't realise that. My first love is ballads. Okay. Um, well, we're going to open up the floor to some questions in a minute. I can't actually see you guys, but... Yeah, um... we can't see anybody, it feels like. <laughs> we will do that. But um, before we get to that, I would like to know, what are you looking forward to for this year? Going to all these places that uh, I said I'd never go to, because it's really hard to explain, but Caribbean heritage, I'm a black man. I've got a goatee. I've got a goatee because I've got a hole in my chin and I quite like the goatee. But there are countries I go to, I'm seen as a Muslim and just taken sidewards. And you arriving for a gig with a three-hour body search is not a great way to start your, your weekend. So... It, <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's, a hard, that's a hard question. It is a tough question, but you've got some exciting gigs coming up this year. Yeah, I, I suppose, let's go back. I did Kiev last week, week four last. I've been avoiding, for whatever reason, I went to a place that was an old building, marble within a building. They had more sound in this place than I have ever experienced. To the point, when I stepped on stage, I couldn't hear the monitors. So I did the whole show listening to the system. So can you imagine bass, 1,800 people, masked ball. It was a better production than many I've seen around the world. It was stunning. Last week, print works. Mm. Uh, <laughs> nah, man, I, I want to, listen, I'm not going to let it go. I spent months asking for an open stage. I didn't get it. It's a fail. Sorry. It was great for the kids. I had a great time, but can you imagine me running around the front of the stage in here? Oh, listen, don't. Um, next one is uh, Terminal V in Edinburgh, which is a, an amazing lineup. I mean, you have to go and look at that one, it's ridiculous. Then uh, the Game Changer, which is this year's going to be my debut in New York. 
I've not wanted to go. I, I went there years ago. I, I run around the States. I had some amazing times. And I just, I just can't be bothered with the visa thing. I just think, I am not coming to the country to do nastiness. I am a working man. Just give me the visa. Instead of the, 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 the game playing thing. I'm not down with that. But I'm going to try it this time. But um, I'm headlining my own stage at a festival, a brand new festival called Gather. So I've handpicked a bunch of people, including Danny Tanaglia, which to sit on stage and watch him play, we were just like, shh. Um, and then Secret Solstice in Reykjavik, which has been a dream forever, the 24-hour light thing. So I'm just picking out things that are interesting because I, I do feel that when you, when you get to a certain stage in this game, it just feels like a, a, a rat run because you end up playing the same place every year. And it, it might sound amazing. I mean, the only place I love, Tokyo, every day. But you get bored because you know where you're going. You know the crowd can't get any busier or better. The system's not going to change. So there's no real excitement. I mean, it's not just about money. Anybody who knows me is I do 24 gigs a year. That's it. I'm not interested in making... I'm not interested in, though. I want an experience. I want to go to a club like... Stereo, Stereo Montreal, where guys hand-built every unit in the club. Your monitors are the same build as the club system. And you drop weight on stage and you hear the people in the audience go, ooh, because they feel it. That's the experience I want. And it seems to be getting harder to find because less is spent on great productions now. You know, back in the day, you'd have some amazing production. The, the promoter would spend money so it looks good, girl-friendly, beautiful, great sound system. Now it's about getting away with the bare minimum. And, and I, I must say the sound system here is good. But it, it, it's a bugbear. It really is a bugbear. I mean, I played Leeds last year, and track one, both monitors went, and the promoter just left me. And I said to him, when did you service the monitors? Oh, we only rent the space. It, it's not good enough. You're making money, just, just invest a little. And also, I do think that the, the new guard, I, that's why I've travelled a further field this year. Last year, all the, the, the new blood doing clubs, they'll pay you your fee, but it pretty much stops there. Anything else you ask for, space, stage, sound, monitoring, sub-speaker on stage, they'll promise it, and I'll sign it off. But when you get there, it's almost like, well, I've paid you and you're here, just, just do your thing, and it's like, well... There's so much more than that. And when you have those experiences, they, take, they, they crush you. When you know you're going to give one 10%, 110%, and you end up giving 50 because the production wasn't right, that's heartbreaking. Well, we appreciate you taking care of those details for us. I try. <laughs> um, does anyone have a question for Mr. G? And if you do, please could you wait for the microphone? Don't trip me up. Hi. Um, do you still go out? And if you do, where do you go? Do you know what? I don't go, I don't go clubbing so much. I go a lot more concerts. You know, I went to see uh, the best concert last year. I can't even believe it. Human League and uh, Midior in Leicester. And I have to say, they were incredible. Sonically, production-wise, stage setting. And, it, and, it, and it's a bit like, why, why do people not follow the good? Because this is amazing, it looks amazing, it sounds amazing, it's quite simplistic in its stage setting. That's what I'm about. I will go out and see Theo or Moody or if there's someone that comes into town that I love, I am there. You know, if, if it's the same old, same old, just, yeah, just, just leave me out. 
I think you, and also you see a lot on the road and on the road, I choose people to be around that I want to see. So, you know, I wanted to see Blauen, the mighty Blauen, so I booked myself somewhere before or after him so I can meet him, see what he does and shake his hand. And I, and I think that's just as just important. I'm, I, I can't really go clubbing anymore. It just, yeah, <laughs> 12 for that, man, 57. Why, you, you think what I do on stage, it takes three, four days to recover. You know, I put so much in. I'm not a man just stood there nodding my head. I'm a lunatic. So, so, so going out is, yeah, only if it's really great. Hello? Oh, hi. <laughs> um, what do you enjoy um, about when you're doing your live sets opposed to DJ sets? And do you encourage young DJs and producers to do live sets opposed to DJ sets? Hard question. The live thing is the hardest thing because if you... Imagine that everybody's on MP3s and they're super loud and they can go where they want tempo-wise. I can't. I started about 126 and I'm, I can end about 128, 130. So if the warm-up's wrong and he's not done his job, you're already at a bad start. If something else goes wrong, you're at a bad start. So what I do, I try and cocoon myself in the, in the monitors and connect with the crowd. So recently we've started, when I play, the kids talk to me. So I'm setting up, you'll get people, oh, I'm it's a much nicer thing. So rather than worry about the whole thing, I worry about what's in front of me and relax. And there's always a moment, probably second or third track in, that when I'm relaxed, I like to touch paper and it's, it's, not, it's not a planned performance. Everything I do is just how I feel. When I watch the videos back at the end of the night, I'm as shocked as the next person. You know, for example, All Point C's where I jumped on the table. The sound was rubbish. And I was bored, so I jumped on this table to dance. I didn't see there was a 30-foot drop to the side. So when the kids sent me the post, and I'm watching them, I'm like, oh my God, but that's just me. And I, and I think it's about losing yourself in the moment, feeling free, being abstract, not always... But I love what I do. I love music, I love sound. You know, I play those tracks I play, I play them only 24 times a year. So each time I play them, I get a turn on by them. You know, everybody says, will you release House of Nation or this one or that one? And I'm like, no, we live in a world where you can get everything. I think it's great that the only way you're going to hear these tunes as myself is come out and rave with me. Hello. <laughs> I'd like to know what was the last 10 out of 10 record that you bought? Give me a minute. Oh, the, the latest internet album. The last internet album last year. I, I, listen, everybody's going to Anderson Pack, Lamar, and all the rest of them. But I think pretty much everybody missed the gem, which is the, inter the, the last album was amazing, and this one is 57 minutes or something long, is just amazing. The internet's never, yeah. That's a cold 10. Amazing. I think that's pretty much all we've got time for, but Mr. G, thank you so much for sharing it's a pleasure. with us. It's a pleasure, it's a pleasure, it's a pleasure.
sure as the sun rises in the east, it also sets in the west. As sure as the sun rises in the east, it also sets in the west. 